Welcome to Pull Up A Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK, and in each episode, I'll be chatting to some of the world's most influential business leaders and thinkers around sustainable growth and what it means to them and why it matters. For today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dame Elizabeth Corley, the chair of the Impact Investing Institute. She's also an acclaimed author, not of business books, but crime novels set in West Sussex, where she grew up. I'll be talking to her about sustainable investment, social impact, and the challenges and opportunities of transitioning the UK to a low carbon economy. Elizabeth Corley, please pull up a chair. Well, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. You've had an incredible career in the financial sector, and a lot of today is going to be focusing on what you're doing now. But before I start, could I just ask you, what does sustainable growth mean to you? Well, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I think sustainable growth, the cue is in the phrase. So we're looking for growth because without growth, um, society stagnates, people stagnate, businesses stagnate. Um, But unless it's sustainable, you can't build on it for the future. So for me, it's about making long-term decisions which are sustainable. And in this day and age, that's very much around thinking about all your stakeholders. Because if you think about what growth means, as I just said, it means very different things to very different people. Yeah, and that's a very interesting. So the point I was going to pick up on is around the stakeholders. So we talk about the, the needs of people, planet, communities. Do you think it is possible to, to get that in balance and deliver long-term sustainable growth? I don't think it's a question of, is it possible? I think it has to be possible. I think we see so much of life, people trying to make easy choices out of difficult decisions. So, you know, it's a real high wire act to get all of this right all the time. And nobody's perfect. Nobody does it forever in the right way. But I do think it's possible. I think it takes more thought before action sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it takes more integrity of action when you see it through. I just wanted to pick up on your, your, your more recent role as chair of the Impact Investing Institute, yes. which was launched, well, which was set up in 2019, has a very big ambition. Um, but I'm also very mindful that not everybody understands what we mean by impact investing. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the Institute and yep. your goals and aims, and then a little bit about what does impact investing really mean? Sure. So the Institute grew out of a very simple request from the UK government, which was, why is the UK losing its leadership status as the heart of impact investing in the world. A lot of great innovation was done early on in this millennium, and unfortunately, we've lost a bit of it. So when we looked, we realized that there were lots of reasons, most of them systemic, and what we were really talking about was catalyzing change across a whole ecosystem. Now, in there, you've got enough um, bingo words in management speak to confuse (laughs) everybody. So what do I mean? I mean, it's all about driving change for the long term, for sustainable change, and thinking about it as systems-wide change. And so we set up the Impact Investing Institute in 2019 because we realized this was a long-term mission, not a short-term mission. And our goal is to mobilize private capital into places that it doesn't reach easily. And to do that in terms of generating an outcome, whether that's an environmental or social outcome or both. So it's mobilization of private capital where it's needed most, both domestically and internationally. That links to the second part of your question. What do you mean, where, does it, where is it needed? And what do you mean about making, making an impact? So our definition follows the GIN, global definition, which is around intentionality. So this is about having an intention before you invest. It's around measuring 
the impact of what you're doing. And that's for a financial return within the risk budget, but also the outcome you've said you're going to have, and then disclosing that measurement to others. So you could be intentionally trying to find a solution to lack of female education in a certain place or into finding renewable energy solutions. The intention is what matters, then the measurement and the follow through. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, there is also a little bit of confusion sometimes around impact investing, which you've articulated really beautifully there. ESG. Um, could you just articulate the different, you know, because there are different, there are different lenses that you look at a similar challenge um, or one's a measure, one's a, yeah. so it would be really helpful if you could articulate that. It is a great question because there's a lot of confusion about it and, and it's because there's multiple dimensions to think about it. So ESG, environmental, social and governance, those are considerations um, for public or private bodies to think about when they're making decisions and they were clustered together as a convenience. Um, there was no common definition, there was no common measurement. It was the idea that if you're running a business or you're running any sort of enterprise, you should be thinking about these considerations. The way you think about them might be retrospectively. You might look back and see what sort of impact did I have around that. So that's the biggest difference, I would say. The second difference is that if you think about ESG, environmental, social and governance, there's a spectrum of ways of thinking about it. One is from pure risk avoidance. I want to avoid doing anything that's going to create risk or do wrong, right through to making a contribution to solutions. But you can simply think of it as a risk mitigation or a risk avoidance tool. Impact investing is absolutely about the intention to do something, to have an outcome that's measurable. The one thing I should re-emphasize about impact investing is it is for financial return within that risk budget that you've got. These are not concessionary investments. These are for a financial return, but with an impact as well. So is it fair to say that impact investing is to deliver positive outcomes, whether it's societal or environmental, rather than, as you say, ESG might be to just mitigate the risk? Simply to avoid it, avoid exactly. It. Yes, with intentional positive outcomes. It's yeah. a nice way of saying it. That's a really lovely, lovely explanation. So look, we were both at the Finance for Impact Summit in London last year, right? It was yep. a few months ago now. And that was all about looking at how we can harness finance for good. Yep. Out of that, I know there was a lot of um, real momentum and real desire to make change. It was There was an industry-led set of priorities that we talked about uh, when we were on stage together around scaling finance um, for the positive outcomes. What came out of that was the Just Transition Finance Challenge. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about one, how you feel those priorities have progressed and, and also something on the Just Transition Finance Challenge. Sure. So Yes, before the summit, the, there was some work that the Impact Investing Institute led under the UK's presidency, G7 presidency, where we were looking at the mobilisation of money. Because now we've talked about what we want, the whole question is how do you mobilise it, get it moving? Everybody knows we need a transition to net zero. Everybody knows that we have global warming already, particularly in the global south. It's happening faster and more desperately than it is in other parts of the world. How do we get the money where it's needed to enable a transition to net zero? The work we did at the Institute, which led to the Just Transition Finance Challenge, was all about a just transition. So we've already got a lot of um, gobbledygook in here. Let's, <laughs> let's unpack what just transition means. So essentially, this is about a transition to a net zero world, which thinks about environmental outcomes, but also thinks about socioeconomic outcomes as well, about inclusion and distribution of socioeconomic benefits and spread of risk, 
and also empowers communities to have a voice in what's happening to them and what they want to happen. So it's three elements, environmental, social and community voice. And the challenge was basically a challenge to the global financial system to say, we don't think there's enough of this money moving, it's not moving fast enough, and it's certainly not addressing all three of these goals. So we asked for volunteers, and the volunteers could be asset owners or asset managers, and we expected about three or four. We actually asked for that at the summit last year. Mm. We've had 20 so far, wow. asset owners, um, asset managers, development finance institutions, uh, representing about four trillion pounds. And what they've done is they've co-created a set of criteria We've tested those criteria with a number of community representative bodies around the world, and we've now put those out for public consultation. And the criteria, which are very pragmatic, pragmatic and industry sourced, are around the measurement that you would enable yourself to do to say this vehicle, this fund, this money is contributing towards a just transition. Because what it does is it pulls all the measurement that's around the world. There's loads out there already. So what we've done is we've looked at what's out there on environmental, social and community. And we've created a framework of criteria that will enable people, either asset owners or asset managers or lenders, to think about how we can create vehicles that really do deliver a just transition. And remember, this is about being accountable for how that money is deployed and the impact that it has. So it's really, really exciting. So you've just articulated exactly the essence of sustainable, inclusive growth, right? whether it's domestic or global, by looking at the social, the environmental and the community aspects of it. So if, if you've got vehicles, a business-led approach to investing through vehicles that have positive intent yep. is probably the only way we can move forward. Right. Well, I think, I think there is no, no single source of capital that's going to solve this challenge. We're talking about re-engineering the whole global economy to be a green and sustainable economy with people not left behind. And as Mark Carney said, um, that's trillions and trillions of dollars oh. in movement that's needed. This work is very complementary to the work that central banks, um, governments, regulators are doing. Uh, to what the GFANS network that grew out of yep. COP26 does. So it's really complementary and it's saying that every capital source in the world, if deployed in the appropriate way, can deliver a net zero transition, but it's urgent and it's important. And people very often try and make trade-offs between growth now and growth future. We're not demonizing the fact that we actually need sources of energy now. We need sources of food now. You don't demonize that, that's essential. And people's lives and livelihoods are dependent on it. You can't just rip out a part of an economy and say, I'm awfully sorry, you're no longer needed. You have to think about this as a transition that includes the environmental goals alongside the societal change that's needed and the community agency that's needed. Yeah, complex, gritty challenge. But it's very but it's, real. But very real, exactly. Really, really interesting. So I just wanted to pick up on something. You have answered it, but I just want to pick up one more time. You talk about the, the challenges of making short-term decisions mm. that don't necessarily hold us back or prevent us from delivering the long-term goals. And this is a challenge that all businesses are dealing with every day in the boardroom. And when, when businesses face a choice between delivering financial returns and generating real world impact, do you think you can balance that? Or, or are we literally always calibrating and making trade-offs? I think it's a great question. And I think it, it varies by sector and it varies by how strong a particular company or enterprise might be. If you've got a very strong balance sheet, loyal, long-term shareholders, um, providers of finance, 
fantastic employee base and a stable regulatory environment, you can make decisions for the long term and feel confident that you aren't going to be compromising your short-term viability. Mm. If, on the other hand, you haven't got those things, then you're going to have to make daily trade-offs just to continue to survive, keep employment going, keep your customers happy. So I do think it's situational, but I do think also that every boardroom and every management group should be thinking about these things proactively and explicitly and acknowledging yeah. whether it's a short versus long-term trade-off. And sometimes you have to be realistic. Sometimes you have to make short-term trade-offs because you don't have a choice. But I think it should be a conscious decision. We haven't talked about it yet, but this is where purpose comes into business yeah. and purpose comes into any enterprise. If you've got a very clear understanding of your purpose and if your strategy originates in purpose, when you're having these conversations about short, medium and long-term and also trade-offs by stakeholder group, then it anchors back to purpose. It isn't a perfect world and no decision is perfect, but it is about trying to optimize the decisions in the circumstances that you are. So impact investing has been around for some time. Do you think it's had its moment yet? No, I think it's just coming <laughs> into its stride. I actually think it really is. It's very, very interesting. When I first started this work, and I'm a latecomer to it, I mean, really the term impact investing was coined in 2007 by a group of philanthropists who got together and foundations, and I'm very much a latecomer to it. But actually, it's amazing how it's taken on a momentum and a relevance of its own. And people are recognizing that if we want to have this sustainable future, yeah. and we want to be leaving something better than we found it, you have to think about impact investing alongside many other measures, but it's absolutely central. And it's interesting, one of the things that the Institute's doing, as well as the Just Transition Challenge, we're doing some work which is more domestic around place-based impact investing. And one of the things that we recommended was that if you look at the pools of pension capital in the UK, they can be deployed for impact. And if you took 5% of the local government pension schemes, you would get 16 billion pounds worth of investment available for places. And we know from recent surveys that around 89% of pension funds are thinking about making more place-based yeah. investment. Some people say, isn't that a trade-off with your fiduciary duty, generating that long-term return? The answer is no. As long as the investable projects are there, then you can make the investment as a pension fund board or trustees. And the Institute's working with certain councils in the UK to create those projects which are investable for those pension funds. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at the sort of the investment cycle, you know, we're looking about impact investing, which is one part of the yeah. cycle with a group of stakeholders, but ultimately it's what happens on the ground. Yes. Do you ever see a point where you feel there will be a time where you can say job done? For the I do hope so. I think our <laughs> ultimate success as a board at the Impacting Investing Institute, we talk sometimes about our key performance indicators. And actually one of our long term key performance indicators is that we're no longer needed, that this has become so intrinsic to the way in which capital markets work and capital flows that, that we're really not needed. Also that in, in moving into the mainstream, we don't lose the integrity of what impact stands for. So you really are a catalyst to get this movement moving and make Absolutely. it a reality. and an enabler. Yeah, yeah. lovely. You've had your foot in um, both business uh, for many years, as well as now chairing the Impacting, uh, Impact Investing Institute. How do you help businesses navigate some of these conversations around priorities, purpose, and how they play a role in sustainable growth and sustainable futures for everyone? I think that's a really good question because we're very focused on the finance system. So the businesses we engage with are, are financial and professional services firms. We don't engage very much with corporates unless it's through their pension fund. 
And I really believe, particularly as you move into the just transition and into place-based impact investing, the role of corporates as employers and providers of product and solutions is absolutely key. The reason we don't directly engage with them as the institute is because typically it's the asset manager or the bank or the asset owner who's engaging through stewardship with those underlying enterprises. Um, so we've got lots of resources for the financial services community, but less so at this stage for the corporates themselves. You've had a distinguished career in business, Elizabeth. Um, I'd love to know whether you feel or your views on leadership have changed over your, ex over your time and how you think that might evolve as we face into some of these, you know, these, talk these things we just talked about, the short term versus long term, the sustainable growth, economic, economical, environmental, social and community. There's so many sort of parts that we're trying to balance. Um, how do you think leadership's changed? Well, I think it's changed fundamentally. Um, I've been working for more than 40 years. And um, if I think about my, my assumptions on leadership when I started as a sort of 18 year old kid, um, I thought it was all about authority, telling people what to do, making big decisions, guiding, being strong, sort of almost a military style of authoritative leadership. And honestly, I think in business, that's virtually what I found everywhere. There was a sense of trust in authority, trust in the institution and trust in hierarchy. That has been fundamentally challenged, I think, and rightly so. And I think now if, if you listen to people talk, they would talk about leadership as service, which is almost 180 degrees opposite. Yeah. You still have authority, but you only have the authority that you've earned uh, through the respect and the service you've provided to those that you're leading. And I think that's a very healthy evolution, very healthy evolution. Where the challenges come is that you still have to be decisive, you still have to be clear, you still have to be rooted in purpose, but I think Actually, it's a more inclusive style of leadership. I think it allows more types of people to emerge as leaders that are simply not the charismatic autocratic. Um, you're looking for very different leadership styles, very different personality types. And I think you can remain authentic as you grow into leadership. Whereas when I was starting my career, the question I got asked most often as I got into a little bit more seniority was, can I still be myself and lead? Yeah. Almost as if there was this belief in a trade-off of the things that made you who you were were not consistent with making you a leader. So I think things have changed fundamentally and there's a lot of good common sense talked about it. I think we're also accountable much more to our stakeholders. We know that you know, our customers don't need to come to us, our employees don't need to work with us, colleagues on a board don't need to serve with us. So I think there's a de greater degree of accountability and choice as to how people spend their time. And the best people have the best choices. So I think leadership is about encouraging the best people to want to work with you, frankly. So just moving a little bit to you, Elizabeth, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, who do you turn to? Because you, you know, you're, you're leading this movement. I call it a movement, but there's a real movement and a momentum around impact investing. Who do you turn to, to get some perspective or sort of, you know, inspiration from? Oh gosh, um, I think there's so much inspiration out there. When you see what people are doing, and you see what people are doing with very little resource to, to change the world without any of the privileges or opportunities I've had, it is really humbling and it's fantastic. In practical terms for the Impact Investing Institute, we have a brilliant board uh, who hold me to account quite rightly, are full of ideas, are full of energy, inspiration. Um, nobody gets tired of this. It's a passionate bunch and their ambition for what we should be doing is significant. So I always feel they, they hold me to account and they keep me on my toes but I also feel if I had a real challenge or a real difficulty, I could call on any one of them to ask for advice and that they would give it. They're wonderfully generous. 
Um, if it's a more personal issue, I'd probably talk to my husband, actually. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, what would that be? I think the most, depends on when in time, starting right out, you know, straight from school into work, impatient, hungry, keen to get on, keen to prove myself in a different way, not with a degree, but just a different way. I think I would have said to myself, just lose the chip on your shoulder a bit earlier. Um, because whether you like it or not, if you, if you come in an unusual route, you're constantly proving yourself, which is brilliant. Do it the positive way rather than feeling weighed down. Believe in yourself much more. Mid-career, I would just wish I'd, I'd learned earlier the things I learned, which is about assembling the best team. Um, really, the whole point of leadership is to have those great people wanting to work with you and, and to be inspired to work with you. Um, to cut myself a bit of slack. I, I'm my, probably my own worst critic, and I'm constantly saying to myself, could I have done that better? I do that even now. Could I have done that better? Could it be better? And I think that's fine, because it drives you to the next level of performance. But just every now and then, just say, just relax, chill out. It's fine. You're doing OK. Um, I've always had a very balanced life. When, I, when I'm not working, I can switch off. I've got a switch in my brain. I just switch off. I've got loads of outside interests, wonderful family. I feel. One of the greatest gifts I have is a lovely family and good friends. And I think I can just switch off and enjoy myself. I'm not somebody who is desperately feeling adrift if they're not working. What an inspiring story, Elizabeth, because you are inspiring as a role model, but as a leader too in everything you do. Um, and it's so nice to get a little bit of a window into you. Um, I'm going to pick up on the point about that you said that you're able to switch, switch yes. off and, and, you know, and and sort of be away from work, so to speak. So 10 years ago, you were asked how you managed to hold down your very senior business roles while finding the time to write, of all things. You know, you're a novelist as well. And I mean, I can't, can't even imagine where you find the time. How do you sustain yourself? Is your writing your way of sort of getting away from it and sustaining yourself and keeping your energy and motivation and inspiration? Or is there something else as well? I think it's more multifaceted than work and writing. Um, I'm an extremely curious person. I really, really like people. So, I, I mean, writing's actually probably the loneliest thing I do because it's me and, a, and it, me and a piece of paper or me and a computer. So that's quite a isolated piece of work. But I find doing different things um, incredibly relaxing. I really do. So this weekend, I was in Amsterdam at the Vermeer exhibition with my husband. It was fantastic. And I worked, lived and worked in Amsterdam over 30 years ago and going back and finding places almost unchanged mm. but seeing that exhibition as well I come back feeling absolutely refreshed and sort of bouncing with energy um, although we did walk miles and uh, it, anything's different I do find the thing I do need is time to reflect uh, if I I can have a habit of moving and working very fast and thinking very fast and getting compulsively faster and faster and faster and if I don't break that cycle, A, it exhausts everybody around me, and B, I won't necessarily be making the best decisions or the most optimised decisions. I'll be getting to a pace that is no longer as productive as it could be. So what I've, one of the things I've learned is to put breaks in my diary, literally even physical breaks, which basically say, no meetings, no calls. And that's my trigger to say, think, relax, read, take a walk, whatever it is. And I find that's the thing that keeps me going most. So as well as variety and new things, um, having that self-discipline not to just drive myself too much, too fast. And that's it. I think that's something I will take away from our conversation is that time to reflect. 
because you recharge yourself and you're back out again, right? Running at 100 and miles often, an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but often, you know, if you go too fast, you're just not listening to yeah. the best voices around you either because they haven't had a chance to resonate with you. So that's also the other thing I learned, fortunately, quite early in my career is just because I think in a certain way and at a certain pace, not everybody else around the table is going to be thinking that same way. So you have to pace a meeting and pace a conversation around a topic to allow different people to come in in different ways. Some people need a long time to assimilate information, not because they're not clever, but because actually they're very clever and they're really thinking about it hard. Others will be like that. Mm. And I think one of the things you have to do, and it's particularly true as a chair, is allow for those different contributions. We talk about diversity a lot, but diversity of thought and getting a board that can really fire on all cylinders with very different contributions from different perspectives, I think is one of the most interesting things and one of the most challenging things to do. But I, I really enjoy that. Thank you. I think um, this thing around pace is really important because it is, you're right, we are, we're all trying to do things. And we talked about the impact in you know, investing being urgent today. But you, we do need to have a pace that allows us to make the right decisions as we go at a speed. Sometimes sustainable pace. Sustainable pace, that's it. There we go, the buzzword. Um, I've taken away so much from here today. Um, a number of things, conscious trade-offs, right? And that is in both in the decision-making in a business context, as well as the personal, right? We've just talked about reflection and pace and curiosity and time for yourself. And, and you talked about your team being really important to you. So I do think there is something around that. How do you make sure collectively you deliver what you want to deliver on? You talked about the role of the Institute as an enabler, but I think that's quite an interesting concept anyway, because enabling not just in terms of the financing, but enabling these disparate needs across different geographies and communities. And, and how do we enable that? And the most important thing I've taken away is the power of the collective. Mm -hmm. And we saw that at the Finance yeah. Summit last yeah. year. You know, we had all these investors in the room all rallying behind the priorities that were set out in that report. But, but not because they were asked to do it, because they want to do it. And I think what they were looking for, and what the industry was looking for, was a way to come together. And I love this way you talk about, you know, the intention with positive outcome. I think the sum of this interview is, is that intention with positive outcome. And possibly just to add one thing, which is yeah. it is... Whilst I talked about pacing oneself and reflection, what we're doing has some urgency to it. And therefore, we might take short breaks, but that's because we're running a very long race and we have to keep running. So I do think the pace at which we change is something we just should be very, very conscious of. That's a really lovely place to end. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for joining me today on Pull Up A Chair, whether you're at home, at work, or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and thinkers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet and profit. Goodbye.